This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. We've been steering away from traditional literature for the last three weeks to look at three foundational documents of American history that have been noteworthy, not just for their historical importance, but also for their literary value. We started with Patrick Henry's speech to the Virginia Convention with the famous phrase, Give me liberty or give me death. Last week, we analyzed the Declaration of Independence And this week, we're looking at the Constitution of the United States of America. All three of these, I'm sure many have heard of, but maybe have never really had the opportunity to explore. I think that's certainly true for me most of my life. Uh, As you know, I didn't grow up in the United States, so although I'd heard of these documents, and actually, if I have to be honest, I went and saw them one time and... (laughs) You and Nicholas at the Cage. Archi- yes, at the archives in Washington, D.C., except not Patrick Henry's speech. But I never, I'd really studied them or really understood them in their rhetorical context. And I knew that that's what they were, the country was founded on, and there it is. Well, I think that's actually pretty common, uh, even for many who have studied in American schools, because sometimes these documents are discussed as early as junior high or elementary school, and not really strongly revisited when students are old enough to understand them on a more um, nuanced level. So uh, we have to remember that unlike Antigone or the Odyssey, the story of the American Revolution is a human story of real people. It's not a mythology. And uh, so has been met deservedly with some mixed reviews over the years uh, that have to do with what I hope is progress in human values. However, what the American colonists established on this land was unique in many ways and has been utilized by many peoples all over the world as a model, not for what they failed to do. Uh, I mean, that's easy enough to find, and, and that's undistinguished from all kinds of population migrations around planet Earth 
over the history of the last thousand years or so. But it stands out for the things they did right. And in that way, there's genuine uniqueness to the American story. And what they did right comes down to today's episode, the creation of a constitution, what Madison called an experiment for mankind of good government, a new way of organizing men to live together in a way that would better create honest respect between people and protect the most vulnerable in communities. These ideas shocked a world that had always been evolutionary. In other words, it had been based on the concept of the survival of the fittest and on conquest and subjugation. Well, when we last left off last week, Americans were gloriously soaking up their defiance to the mean and arbitrary King George, telling him off in that famous breakup letter we know as the Declaration of Independence. The writers awkwardly sent it away to Europe to be delivered to the king, and at the same time, they were hectically running around, spreading copies, getting everybody all psyched up because we're going to stand up to the mean tyrant. That's how I interpret it. Uh, the <laughs> My version of the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Um, well, yes, and that bravado was all great until the guns were fired, and Jefferson was right. King George was sending over troops by the thousands and not as a gesture of love. They were uh, moving in literally, and I think those of us who have had the blessed fortune to have only known peace in our lifetimes don't understand that in warfare, when soldiers are about, they force themselves on local populations. They move into local homes. They sleep in bedrooms of local people, eat their food, and literally take over their communities. And isn't that what they call quartering troops, if you look at the language of the Constitution? <laughs> exactly. And that's something that Americans haven't had to worry about in a long, long no. time. And, and that was happening most famously in the Northeastern colonies. And some Americans were loyalists, and they welcomed the British. Uh, others didn't. This is isn't a history podcast, but bottom line, we had what we call today the Revolutionary War. It was long, difficult, bloody, diseased, ridden like wars always are. Uh, General George Washington famously led the poorly clad and poorly armed troops, which some would even call a militia and not even a regular army. And the Americans held their own long enough. Uh, the French are going to intervene, and then finally by 1781, Cornwallis is going to surrender in Yorktown, which effectively ends their military dominance. And by 1783, we have the Treaty of Paris officially ending the war. Uh, however, the end of the war is only the beginning. The Americans were getting ready to learn the first rule of country creation. Oh, so there's rules for that? What? Uh, <laughs> Turns out there is. Um, well, really, I mean, it's a law of nature. But what they learned is tearing something down, even if it is awful and costly, is still a lot easier than building or creating something new. Anybody can tear it down. It takes genius to build. And organizing a place where everyone agreed on the common rules and where there were safeguards so the powerful didn't exploit everybody else, that's a lot more difficult than most of us today even really understand. And more difficult than they realized at the beginning of the process themselves. And it is one of the hallmarks of uniqueness of the whole document. Well, in some sense, you know, it's kind of obvious to see. I've seen that 
core principle in my own life. I remember when I started teaching, I came in, I knew everything. I knew everything. And these other of teachers, you did. they didn't know anything, even though they'd been there for a long time. And a couple of times I remember telling them what to do. Uh, but it doesn't take long before, you know, every new person gets their rear end kicked. And you actually learn that there are reasons why things have developed over the course of time based on experience and not just on these wonderful theories that I had all, I had learned myself in, in school or whatever. So I learned, you know, the basic idea that the creating game is harder than the criticizing game. Always. I learned this in sports too, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I can always tell people what they should have been doing on that soccer field better right. than what I could have done myself. Armchair quarterbacking. Yeah. Well, when we jump into the creating game, we often have to eat crow. And that's really an English expression, but a fun one. It means you had to eat something gross that you didn't really want to. Metaphorically, you had to humiliate yourself. I have had to do that more than once. <laughs> <laughs> well, talk about teachers for a moment. What you described as a new teacher is so common that uh, for the many t years that I was teaching in public school, I didn't even bother to learn your name till you'd been there a third year. <laughs> I'm pretty sure every profession you know, does that. Rookies are just full of enthusiasm, but the business of creating is much more complicated than criticizing. <laughs> To be true. Uh, and, you know, what Americans wanted first and foremost was a government that really minimized government. Uh, loosely translated, that means liberty. So they created this progressive document called the Articles of Confederation that did that. We talked about this last week. Every colony thought of themselves as an independent country, and they wanted to hang on to that local self-rule concept they were primarily worried about two things. They were worried about a monarchy developing, and they were also worried about a controlling aristocracy developing. Which I kind of think is, you know, understandable. I would be worried about that, too. Well, according to their design, uh, each colony elected their own leader. Uh, Chris, you'll be interested to know that New Jersey let women vote. Go, Jersey! <laughs> <laughs> Although most states uh, made you be a property owner to be a voter. Uh, the Articles of Confederation was basically something like the United Nations today. Resolutions were discussed and passed, but the governing body did not have any real power to enforce anything. Each colony contributed to the finances of a confederacy on a volunteer level. Now, keep in mind, who wants to volunteer to pay taxes? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Every state would send a delegate to meet, and they would discuss common problems, but this group didn't have any real power, and it didn't have a real direction. So theoretically, uh, Congress, as explained in the Articles of Confederation, could coin money, they could make treaties with other countries, and they could maintain an army. However, it could not tax. It could not regulate commerce. It was basically a nothing. There was no head of state. It was like being ruled by a large group of people. And, you know, I always give the example in my classes when I would talk about this. Imagine you and 15 of your best friends all have to share a car. Yeah, no one gets it. Yeah. Well, that, you get it if you pay, but they're not paying, so nobody, it doesn't run. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, anyway, so uh, continental money was worthless and nobody wanted it. Everyone was basically relying on the currency of other countries. Uh, after a few years of getting their rear ends kicked by independent rule, really, even before the end of the war, more and more Americans were ready some of them to beg England to take them back. So you have to imagine how bad things were getting considering people had died for the idea of, of separation and independence. Uh, and this war had been bloody and difficult. 
it became obvious that self-rule is not easy. And this libertarian plan of everyone just contributing wasn't going to work. The colonies were a mess, and unless something happened, the entire country was headed toward anarchy and implosion. An incident known as Shays' Rebellion clearly demonstrated that government under the Articles of Confederation was insufficient to preserve in a country. It was a fail. Well, I was reading about this, and it seems everyone saw the problem, but nobody really knew how to fix it. I read where this friend of George Washington, I remember who it was, but he said this, and I'll read it. The prejudices, jealousies, and turbulence of the people at times almost stagger my confidence in our political establishments and almost occasion me to think that they will show themselves unworthy of the noble prize for which we contended, meaning... I think we're pretty much showing that we're too stupid to rule ourselves. And that was a common thought amongst people who were trying to to organize government during that time period. And Washington himself said, what a triumph for our enemies to verify their predictions. What a triumph for the advocates of despotism to find that we are incapable of governing ourselves. I mean, keep in mind, every monarchy in Europe had a vested interest in our failure. Well, to the credit of the leaders trying to take charge, the states realized that they had to come up with some common ground for their very survival, and they had to create an idea that would take into account the honest nature of human beings, not some idealized version of what we wish we were like and we were going to govern ourselves in this ideal way. They had to have a convention. They needed to figure this mess out. How do you create a system that's fair but respectful? It's never been done. Nothing is fair. The world's not fair. The world by nature is competitive. Now, there's a law of nature for you. <laughs> well, and in that lies the genius of the Constitution. Instead of depending on, as has been said before, the better angels of our nature, uh, the Constitution looks at people as... Uh, masses of selfish people, and you have to check their interest. And in, so, at this point, enters James Madison, uh, who honestly no one would ever peg to be the genius to figure it out. He was a sickly kind of guy. He wasn't charismatic at all. He was a hardcore introvert. He was younger than Jefferson and Washington, and he was, like those two, a Virginian. You'll see that a lot of early American history centers around uh, that state, which in some ways is surprising. But Madison was a nerdy rich kid, so to speak, with a very privileged background, to use a modern phrase. Well, I will say this to his credit. He's a small guy, five feet, four inches. So cheers for the small people. (laughs) You're almost as pro-small as you are pro-famous. I know. I know it's tangential, but I do want to say something else about James Madison that I kind of like, and I don't know where else I could talk about it. But his wife is really interesting. Dolly Dolly Madison comes up a lot, and she was quite this character and really kind of a power broker, especially when he was uh, the president and she was the first lady. It seems that she had this gigantic, outgoing personality, and she would throw these amazing parties, but they weren't arbitrary. They were strategic, and she's one of the first women... Well, I will say this. No one's going to defer to Catherine the Great, but one of the first American women to really use her femininity and personal power to be an influencer of her day. And it seems like she had a lot of influence on the presidency and really on American policy at large. She really did. And I would like to point out that she was the hottest catch amongst women during that time period. (laughs) 
and James Madison was Got able to her. seal oh, the sweet deal. sweet James. <laughs> so Dolly was definitely a one-of-a-kind, and the Madisons were definitely what today, what we would call a power couple. Um, and her best move came during the War of 1812. Uh, when the British were burning down the White House, she risked her life to save the art pieces that were in the White House, including the portrait of George Washington, of which we have a replica of in our study, not oh, the original. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we did. I'll, I'll put a picture of that on the Instagram page. Dolly, the painting savior. All right, I'll in my tangent, we can go back to boring old James. No. <laughs> oh, there is that. Uh, <laughs> and getting us to that constitutional convention, maybe we want to do that. Yeah. It, it's interesting to note that he was raised on a Virginia plantation named Montpelier, and his family was just like all the other Virginian planters. They had slaves. And although Madison seemed relatively kind, if you could even use that word in regard to slavery, and he didn't split families, and uh, he even paid for some of them, paid them enough money to purchase their own freedom later in life. But he was very much a part of the system that he was born into. Uh, He lived in an 18th century Virginian gentleman's farmer's life. He uh, went to the university of his choice, Princeton, Uh, That was a bit unusual, but what was even more unusual and perhaps providential about Madison is that while there, he became unusually and extremely interested in classical history, in government, in political theory, uh, even before the revolution. It was almost as if he came along at it just the right time to be interested in the things that were absolutely needed at that unique moment in history. And it's unusual to ever need political science. You know, I that was my degree in undergrad, and I haven't found a reason to have it. <laughs> but James did, or President Madison, to be more respectful. Yes. Well, uh, furthermore, he was unusually bookish, maybe like no one else, except maybe Jefferson. Uh, he intensely studied political works like the law of nature and of nations. And uh, all those many European authors from the Enlightenment, which we've talked about many times before, uh, he was interested in the ancients like Plato and Plutarch, and who speculated on all the stuff, but never had an opportunity to implement Not like this, not like we're about to try to do at at this time period. So when James Madison walked into the Continental Congress, he had a real informed central vision as to what was wrong with the Articles of Confederation and what needed to be done to create a workable set of rules for people to live by. So based on his studies of all the confederacies of the ancient world, Madison was convinced that confederacies were incapable of holding together because of their deliberate lack of a strong federal center. It wasn't just an American Confederacy problem. And he said they all had that same problem and it was destructive. So Confederacies don't work because the centralized power is too weak and it can't hold the Confederacy together. And I mean, that seems obvious from our perspective looking back in history, but you know, it wasn't obvious to them at the time. No, and I don't really blame them. They were really worried about creating another King George or creating this Downton Abbey-like aristocracy where you're stuck downstairs forever. That's where <laughs> I would find myself on by the kitchen. Right, <laughs> and it's important to remember the Arles Confederation, our reaction to the revolution and trying to find our way. So uh, you have to remember each colony was its own independent place, and these colonies did not have an agreement on moral issues for sure. Some of those colonies had slaves like Madison himself, 
Others didn't and were vehemently opposed, like his wife, Dolly's Quaker family. Some colonies had religious freedom, and some had come there for that freedom. And states like Virginia, though, had state churches earlier on. These were big deal issues, and I just threw out a couple. There were a lot more. You know, talking about that, the religion piece, I did find interesting that although Madison... There's no defending. He's clearly a man of his time in regard to slavery. He had, did have an unusual vision of religion that I found a bit more progressive. You mentioned that uh, Virginia was Anglican, and what that meant, as I understood it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but all the best people were Anglican, and the state taxes funded the Anglican church, but the priests were kind of coming and going. And, of course, the members were paying, so they had this kind of rigged power system that the priests had to do, you know, what the paying members were telling them to do. And so uh, they basically, the church was basically supporting the best interest of the moneyed people. And I read a couple of articles where Madison, even as a child, was bothered by this. He had seen some mean people targeting the Baptists. That's the word he termed. Apparently that wasn't. Uh, they weren't, they, that's not, that's the lowbreds. <laughs> well, yes, for that time period. Yeah, and even though I know it's mainstream today, but they were persecuting them, burning their houses, and he has some, he you know, expressed some vivid memories of things that bothered him about this religious peace. Well, Madison himself, by the way, if you're interested in his own religious views, was probably a deist, and although he had a firm belief in God, did not believe enforcing certain doctrines or beliefs or practices on others. He was against what he saw happening in Virginia, even though he was a member of the Anglican Church and a farmer with money. So on that side that was favored, he didn't think the system was right. He said famously, and I quote, religion must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man. He believed and he openly said government support for any religion led to superstition bigotry and persecution. Madison believed that the role of government was protecting every citizen in the enjoyment of his religion with the same equal hand which protects his person and his property by neither invading the equal rights of any sect nor suffering any sect to invade those of another. These were ideas that he shared with Jefferson. And in Jefferson's uh, Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, the idea was basically separation of church and state for the purpose of protecting the church. Well, did he say all this at the Congress? No. All the stuff he's writing about beforehand, and these are ideas you will see that are present all over the Constitution in the Bill of Rights. So to get back to the narrative, in 1787 in Philadelphia, the states come together to figure out how to live together. Madison had written many essays on how to create government before this, and he was ready to go. And when he got there, even though he was only 36 years old, he was the dominating spirit and intellect of the convention. Well, that goes to show you the importance of preparation. <laughs> <laughs> he was that, for sure. Um, and there were problems to be anticipated. I mean, deep suspicions of each state trying to create a system that would give them an advantage moving forward or more influence. These suspicions were well-founded and, and difficult. I mean, there was a history of state-on-state -state economic warfare being carried out during the Articles and Confederation. Madison was from a, a very large and rich state, but he also understood 
acknowledged and accepted compromise with smaller states in creating a central government. I mean, this is an aside, but it's not unlike the argument Americans have every four years about the Electoral College. Uh, The big states want it to be a one-person, one-vote, and this sounds very logical from the perspective, but then smaller states, such as Tennessee would say, no, that's not the deal that we made in 1787. We get a say in how we live, and you don't get to run over just because you have more people. We're the United States, and each state gets to have a voice as a state defending our local culture. Federalism, which is the, the foundation of everything constitutional, is about the sharing of power. It's at the heart of the Constitution, and that's the sole reason that Electoral College exists. If you don't have that, you don't have federalism. Yeah, and I think that cultural diversity is something that we can't overstate, and I really never understood it in in a historical context. You know, we always think everyone is the same, everyone has an equal voice, but this idea that cultures change and people are different uh, really is something that is very American. (laughs) Well, speaking of a cultural change, one is occurring right here that's super important. When we're going to start the Constitution with the phrase, we the people, you have to realize we're in an evolutionary process of we the 13 separate different cultures becoming we the people. And Madison is trying to bring that into reality with words. Uh, So, uh, I mean, going back to the Electoral College argument, I mean, it's also the very exact same argument you see in Europe today as Europeans wrestle with making the European Union work. I mean, how do you live in a place where the big guys, and in Europe's case, like Germany and France, how do you set up so they don't run over the little guys like Greece and Portugal? I mean, there's no easy answer. And this kind of debate was central in coming up with the concept of separation of powers and three branches of government, with the legislating branch having two houses, one established based on population and the other uh, system, each state gets the same voice. By doing this, the founders managed the creation of a central government with enough authority to provide national solutions to some real problems. And the only real problem they kicked down the road to the next generation was the slavery issue. And uh, there was discussion of abolition, but there was no compromise on that issue. Well, there was, but it not an, a compromise that ended it. Of course, this was a problem, and we know that kicking that down the road ended poorly. Well, Thomas Jefferson had a couple <laughs> of great quotes about slavery himself. He said, slavery is like holding a wolf by the ears. It's going to get you. And he also had another great quote. He said, no, anytime he has the thought of slavery, he said it alarms him like a fire bell in the night. This was at the forefront of the conscience and everybody at the convention. Well, to put that aside, another thing that I find amazing is that after they thought and invented this whole system, and it sounds great on paper, now they have to actually implement it and then sell it basically to every single person. Really, I mean, how did they know it was even going to work? Right. (laughs) And I love that perspective because, you know, in our current time, you know, generations have grown up. Yeah, with this idea, of course with it works. the constitutional foundation. <laughs> I mean, you've practiced this in kindergarten when you took a class vote on we're going to go outside to play or we go into the gym. Americans have grown up with that, that mentality. That did not exist at this time period. So um, Madison is really responsible for designing it. Uh, he believed and he stated publicly that this was the first constitution that had ever been written that was based on science. And what he meant was they didn't just dream it up. 
They used data from confederacies and republics in the past to really create a plan that could work. By the end of the convention, the delegates really, truly had to have faith it was going to work. It had to work. They had no other options. Well, I know any economists out there listening to the podcast would have loved to see Madison quoting the data. (laughs) (laughs) But now on to the business of selling the plan. Especially, and I think about this, they'd already blown it so badly with the Articles of Confederation. I would have been just so cynical of anybody coming down. And they they really did believe they had a good idea. But from a rhetorical standpoint, how do you sell it to the cynics? You have to sell this crazy scheme. It's it's so awesome. This unheard government is going to have all these branches and checks and balances. And these are terms that would seem weird. And how would that work? Uh, interestingly enough, we're going to add this piece too. The convention was secret. Oh, it, so people didn't even know they were doing no, it. No, <laughs> there was no minute-by-minute uh, minute tweeting about oh, the progress man. of the Constitution. They emerged from the Constitutional Convention with a document completely scrapping the old government without the permission of the people and then had to go present it to the people of the United States for approval. And, um, you know, the delegates clearly understood the the the. the the bind they were yes, in? Yes, <laughs> the enormity of it. I mean, ratification, which is getting every state to vote uh, to accept the new plan, was not going to be easy. Never mind that this new government was going to have the power to tax people. If you remember, they hadn't really liked taxes. No, T comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's where James Madison, the writer, really makes his mark. Enter the Federalist Papers and... The Federalist Papers are in a lot of American literature textbooks, and they have excerpts. These documents uh, are really famous and foundational, and I actually thought about analyzing them on the podcast, but most of my students have gotten so bored, I was afraid I'd kill the podcast if I brought them on. But (laughs) (laughs) the Federalist Essays are basically a series of essays composed by not just Madison, but Alexander Hamilton and this guy named John John Jay, And the purpose was to convince everyone that this was actually an awesome plan. They needed to show that this is the best idea ever created on planet Earth and the world. And it wasn't going to allow people in power to manipulate the system. And no one was going to be a tyrant under this new system because everyone was worried about things like what they saw happening with the czars in Russia and Louis in France. Most scholars, actually, the ones that I've read, agreed that the Federalist Papers, and this is kind of cool, are the single most important contribution that Americans have ever made to the canon of world political theory, which, of course, is dominated by all the Enlightenment guys. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, the, the Federalist Papers um, are articulate, they're organized, they're well-argued defenses of this strange, new, non-totalitarian form of self-rule built on the idea that we shouldn't trust each other. And that's, you know, counterintuitive, but again, so logical. But it's so in line yes. with human nature. <laughs> he says, don't trust each other. We have to build a system that doesn't trust because we have to acknowledge that we're all a little bit evil and we have to keep an eye on each other at all times. And another thing I like about the Federalist Papers, and this is an English thing, he calls himself Publius in them. <laughs> yeah, this right. is, yeah, which is fun. Uh, I'm a Julius Caesar fan and, you know... He signed Publius all the time. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, you simplified a little bit there, but back to what you're saying. Yes, Madison saw 
uh, as the biggest problem in government, the risk that different interest groups would try to take control and rig the system for themselves. Uh, he thought the main goal of the system of a government is to create a system that would prevent any group or person from getting too much power. Um, he, or Publius, as you said, Publius. <laughs> famously said in Federalist Number 10, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Uh, in Federalist 48, he said that not only were businesses and commercial entities to be kept in check, but also the government must be kept in check. Everyone must be accountable to everyone else all the time in order to halt what he called the encroaching spirit of power. So that's what the Constitution was designed to do. And the central tenet and foundation is checking faction with faction. It's an essential part of the Constitution plan, not just separating powers between branches of government, but separating powers among various factions. And the men at the Constitutional Convention debated for four months on how to do that. It was grueling, but they finally ratified this document that most Americans just take for granted and rarely think about. Uh, three men dissented, but that wasn't the end of the process. After the Congress agreed, uh, all the separate delegates had to go back to the states, and nine of the 13 states had to ratify it. And a big problem, not even Virginia, Madison's home state, was willing to sign off on it for a while. They just didn't trust it. James Madison himself actually had one big problem with it, and that problem was the Constitution did not have a Bill of Rights. Yeah, and that's a term you hear all the time. Uh, what is a Bill of Rights? Well, it's a list of protected liberties that are always guaranteed, even if the government wants to make a law against them for any reason. Uh, this was not a thing the Americans invented. The English had already created this concept with the Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights. Some states already had their own, including Virginia and Massachusetts. But it was a legitimate concern that James Madison shared. Uh, before Virginia and many other states agreed to the Constitution, there had to be assurances that a Bill of Rights guaranteeing civil liberties was in the works and quickly in the works. Well, Madison himself wrote them. Um, well, he wrote the first 10 amendments, which today is what we call the Bill of Rights. Yes, and a year later, they were debated and adopted into the Constitution specifically on December 15, 1791. So Madison and others knew that words create reality, and the task at the convention was select the language that would explain the idea of constitutional government. So are we ready to read this thing? Are we going to read the whole thing? No, I know that would be too boring. And, and thank you for the explanation of the rhetorical situation. I know it was a bit long. Uh, but I do want to look at the document itself, starting with uh, the preamble. It's important to understand the claims and arguments inherent even in the beginning of the piece. I do want to explain on the front end, for those of you who maybe are unfamiliar with the document itself, what it looks like. It's kind of divided up very simply. So first there's the preamble, and it's really short. Then there's articles. There's seven of those. And then finally, you can have all these amendments. So one, two, three, and we should look at them like that. First the preamble, then the articles, and then the amendments. Well, like you mentioned, the whole thing is extremely straightforward. The paperwork I signed to get my cell phone was twice as complex as this document. I really do think there's genius in that. Everyone can understand the words, even if we want to argue about exactly what is meant by each article of the Constitution. So, 
the preamble, which we all, I don't know if we all, but many of us had to memorize sometime back in junior <laughs> high. It's less than 60 words. Yeah, and I do want to say preamble, you know, I, that's not a common word. It just means introduction. So let's read the teeny tiny short introduction. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common justice, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Well, and there you have the most important famous line of the whole thing, the line, we the people, it's meant so much over the years to so many. We see it on historical shows, on documents, we see it on paperwork, on holidays and stuff. Just in terms of language, I do want to point out that it's really one sentence, one long periodic sentence with tons of detail climaxing at the end of the sentence. Well, and I cannot overemphasize enough the phrase, we the people, is the very first phrase in the Constitution. And we the people, historically, has been a central phrase in understanding American core values. We the people, it's not a union of states, although it is that, but it transcends the states. We're looking out for people, all people, and this is about claiming a new identity as a nation. Abraham Lincoln emphasized the idea of we the people in his Gettysburg Address. He wasn't creating lofty platitudes. He was stating a plain-spoken fact of historical record. And I thought it was important to note that it really kind of establishes a hierarchy of values that are implied in this document. This is what we find most important, and then we're going to go on from there. Yeah, uh, this definition has expanded over the years, and it gives voice to I mean, all kinds of groups that are disenfranchised because their voice is smaller. We the people, I mean, who does that include? Uh, We are the American people, a group of people that have no common culture, no common DNA, no common religion, no common anything. We are not a single people group like you would expect. Uh, This was seen as true then, and it's even more true today. The Constitution has informed who we the people are. What we have in common is not our backgrounds, but our common responsibilities towards each other. And this must be pointed out. I mean, America has never been a tribe with shared ancestry and beliefs. Uh, And these have been the things that have been traditionally held people together. But in the American case, this was not going to be true. And that's what the rest of the sentence has given voice to. It lists the accepted responsibilities towards each other that would inform this people. The responsibilities would be at the heart of our agreement to live together in this social contract. And these are important words. Establish justice. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty. Good grief. Those are very large claims, and it's a lot to agree to. Ensure domestic tranquility, promote general welfare, secure freedom? That is a tall order, and uh, no doubt, and no paper can guarantee that. But but these were going to be our responsibilities towards each other, and I have to use that word a lot. It was the virtue of these responsibilities that were laid out or spoken. And if you think about it, it's a complex way of looking at the world. Uh, We're all going to give up some of our power and some of our freedom that we could take for ourselves 
to do certain things for all people. It's an agreement and a social contract, and it was at the heart of the intellectual thinking of James Madison in that time period. Well, and it's interesting because it's so different than thinking it's my rights. You know, this idea that it's my responsibility. You can't have a right unless someone else gives it away to you. And this shared common sense of responsibility is something that I don't really think about very well, much. Interesting enough, and I don't want to sidetrack too much, but historiography is the study of how history is studied. Every generation will interpret historical events differently. Okay, There used to be a time period in American history where American history was seen as teaching the responsibilities of citizenship. Yeah, and I, I don't even think about, I mean, right. I'm not into that, but well, I don't think of it in those terms. But well, responsibility is the key working factor for uh, a constitutional form of government. Well, back to the language. So now we have the preamble, and we saw that. And then part two, we see the articles. Well, that's right. The Constitution is divided into seven articles, and each article is further divided into sections that explains each of those three branches that we talked about and how to make changes to the Constitution itself should the need ever arise, and it will a total of 27 times. <laughs> uh, Madison wanted the document to be flexible to account for things that would need to change over the years, and but he also wanted it to be clear uh, that this is the supreme law of the land. It supersedes state laws. We're going to have a civil war over that concept. So um, Article 1 deals with the legislative branch of government. Article 2 deals with the executive branch. Article 3 deals with the Supreme Court and inferior courts. Article 4 uh, defines the relationship between the states and the idea of federalism. Article 5 describes the procedure for amending the Constitution. Article 6 declares that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And Article 7 ratifies the Constitution. You know, to me, it's so interesting that it's short. It has less than 7,000 words. I mean, that's so short. I make kids write papers longer than that. True. <laughs> Uh, but but most constitutional scholars would agree that it's the brevity that is its strength. I mean, it's a flexible document. And over the years, I mean, it has certainly evolved and been refined and some would even say redefined. And this document has governed a nation that started off as small farmers and agriculturally based. And it's transitioned us to a nation that's gone to the moon and even farther. I mean, that's a lot of evolution for a government. True indeed. So, Christy? Read for us the first article. Okay, here it goes. Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution of the United States. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. That didn't take long. <laughs> there you go. Brevity, <laughs> the genius of it. Section 2. The House of Representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states, and the electors in each state shall have the qualifications requisite for electors of the most numerous branches of the state legislator. No person shall be a representative who shall not have attained to the age of 25 and been seven years a citizen of the United States, and who shall not, when elected, be an inhabitant of that state in which he shall be chosen." Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within the union according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons, including those bound to service for a term of years and excluding Indians that are not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. 
The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of 10 years in a matter as they shall by law direct. And of course, it kind of goes on. <laughs> That's all you can do right now. Uh, so you get the idea. I mean, it's it's very easy to understand. So hats off to Madison. You have to be 25 years old. Um, elections to the House of Representatives are every two years. It's just easy to understand. And the House of Representatives is limited to your terms because they wanted that House to be very sensitive to the will of the people. And a short term was the way to accomplish that. Uh, the Bill of Rights are equally very clear. Uh, it's much clearer than the average cell phone contract, as we talked about, or a contract to buy your car, and much, much simpler than even buying a house. Well, although they're not super long, I don't want to read all of them, but after you get through the articles, we get to the Bill of Rights. And by the way, the Bill of Rights had its own preamble. I'll read it because it's short and sweet. The convention of a number of the states, having at the time of their adopting the Constitution, expressed in its desire to, in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added. There you go. Here they are. Short and sweet. I kind of really like the style, just very short. Yes. It's it's very uh, mathematical and yeah, scientific. that's kind of yeah. you can see that uh, this you know James had this you know maybe not interesting flamboyant personality, but it was had a purpose. The House actually passed twelve of those amendments, but the states only ratified ten of them. If you remember, there's a process in Article Five of the Constitution for how changes are supposed to be made, and there's a couple different ways that can be done. But these Bill of Rights have turned out to be incredibly important over the years and are referenced all the time, especially the first and the second ones. And as you read through them, you'll notice that most of them really are there to protect people who are accused of crimes. Do you want to read the first two? Sure. Amendment 1. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Amendment 2. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's been controversial. Uh, they all are in some way. True. Uh, uh, this third one is about quartering soldiers that you mentioned early on. Amendment 3. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Well, it, you'll, again, you'll notice this language is very direct, very clear. You cannot move into people's homes ever. We take that one for granted. <laughs> Amendment 4. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Okay, they are starting to get a little more legalese, and that's a little rough. But you can clearly get the gist of what they're trying to say every time. And they're clearly addressing the abuses of the British government. And they want to um, convince people that that's not going to be allowed under the Sure. System. And phrases like search and siege and probable cause are things, you know, that we hear in every detective show right. ever mm -hmm. done. Yeah. yeah. 
I know it can be a little dry, and it's definitely not poetic, but it's really important stuff. And Amendments 5, 6, and 7 are extremely important if you were ever unfortunate enough to get arrested. Uh, you must be treated as an innocent person, respected, and those amendments explain what that looks like. And I know everyone expects a history teacher to feel this way, but it's incredibly important to put some thought in this sort of thing. The Constitution and the Bill of Rights were designed to be something we all understand clearly and agree to voluntarily. Society works best when that's the case. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said in 2008, The strength of these rights and freedoms depends on how firmly they stand in the hearts of our citizens. I kind of like that phrase. They have to stand in the heart, not just in the minds or not just on the books. And it reinforces this whole idea of the social contract and responsibilities. And she's basically echoing that concept voiced 200 years ago before her in this contractual document. I mean, this is a contract between people, different people, all kinds of people. And it rests on our ability to live together. And our vision of freedom basically depends on how willing we are to understand and personally agree to the responsibility set forth in the original document. Well, obviously, that's no easy thing to do. Not at all. (laughs) But hats off to James Madison and the rest of them for giving it a go and thinking it up. Uh, Yes, and it's just a foundational part of our culture and deeply ingrained in Americans to the point they can't even find the source of it, but it's there. Um, So uh, I think that wraps it up. So thanks for listening to our discussion today of the Constitution of the United States. And uh, that concludes our unit on American documents that we're doing for this month. And next week for our poetry supplement, we're going to be back at some traditional literature with the poetry of Phyllis Wheatley. The great American poet who introduced the term Columbia to most of us. Such a remarkable woman and legacy, so we can look forward to that. And don't forget, if you like our podcast, please support us by giving us a five-star rating on your podcast player. And even more than that, send an episode to a friend. When you share, we grow. All right, well, peace out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.